0: Welcome to the show, everybody. Special teams is very important. If you're a regular reader of the game before the money.com, you know that Dick Vermeil was the first ever special teams coach in the NFL and Marv Levy was the second. And so today, part of our focus is going to be on the kicking game. Lining up for the field goal. The snap, hold, kick, no good. Hold on, they're signaling it good. I thought it went over the goalpost and to the left. From where I am in the press box, that did not look good. Okay, so one of the segments on the show we're going to focus on an important rule on why some field goals that look no good actually count. Justin Tucker kicked a game-winning field goal a few years back, and a lot of people thought it shouldn't have counted. We're going to look at a couple of classic playoff games that were decided on controversial field goals. The 1965 Western Division playoff between the Colts and Packers. I can already hear some of you Colts fans screaming about that one. Also, the 1986 AFC Championship game ended on such a call, although John Elway's drive is much better remembered than Rich Carlos's game-winning field goal in overtime. All-Pro linebacker Carl Mecklenburg of the Denver Broncos will give his memory of that field goal and will also outline the rules so when it happens in a game, you'll be prepared. I'm not old enough to remember the Colts-Packers game, but I do remember the AFC Championship game and thinking that that field goal was no good. So we'll look at what the refs might have been thinking when both field goals were called good. We're also going to discuss the only kicker to win the NFL's MVP award. In 1982, Mark Mosley won the Most Valuable Player award, and he'll talk about winning that award. Also give you the Game Before the Money college football preview focusing on teams that aren't getting enough press. So stay tuned to the Game Before the Money on the Map Radio Network. All right, I'd like to talk about the rules a little bit, the rules for field goals, because every now and again, this comes up where a field goal goes above the upright, and there's a lot of controversy about it. This has happened throughout NFL history, and I'll use two very famous examples from the playoffs. Now, I'm not going to give my personal opinion on either of these field goals. I'm standing neutral here, just giving the history and the quote from the NFL rule book. In 1965, the Baltimore Colts and Green Bay Packers tied for the NFL's Western Conference title. This was back in the day when there was usually only one playoff game, the NFL Championship game. In 1965, however, there was a divisional playoff between the Colts and Packers at Lambeau Field, which, by the way, had just been named Lambeau Field. In August of 1965. Before that, it was called New City Stadium. You can learn more about that on thegamebeforethemoney.com. The 1965 Colts at Packers playoff is famous for several reasons. First, it was rare that there was an extra playoff game during that era. Second, the Colts were without Johnny Unitas, who was lost to a knee injury. And they were without second-street quarterback Gary Quazzo, who suffered a shoulder injury. Don Shula, the head coach of the Colts at the time, started halfback Tom Maddy at quarterback. Maddy wore a wristband with the plays written out on it to help him call plays. You might think that gave the Packers a huge advantage, but their star quarterback, Bart Starr, was injured on the first play of the game. Zeke Bratkowski filled in. Another reason why this game is famous and why we're talking about it today is that Packer kicker Don Chandler tied the game near the end of regulation with a very controversial field goal. The field goal tied the game at 10 and sent the game into overtime, only the second ever NFL playoff game to go into overtime. The first, of course, being the famous 1958 Colts-Giants championship game. So the Packers tied the game at 10 with the controversial field goal and eventually won the game 13-10 to 10 in overtime. They went on to win the 1965 NFL Championship game and eventually three straight NFL Championships. After that 1965 Colts-Packers playoff, Hall of Fame tight end John Mackey was quoted in the Baltimore Sun as saying that it was very tough to lose the game on a judgment call after playing their hearts out. And that Colts-Packers playoff is still a bitter pill to swallow for Colts fans even now. Tony Lorick, a running back on that Colts team, still disputed the call when I interviewed him for the book, the game before the money, over 40 years after it happened. Now, all of us as fans have had to, at some point, endure losing a game on a last-second field goal, and it's heartbreaking. But when it happens in the playoffs and it happens on a controversial play, that even makes it worse. Colts fans still, to this day, wonder what if. But that's not the only time a controversial field goal helped determine the outcome of a playoff game. The 1986 AFC Championship game was played at Cleveland between the Browns and Broncos. John Elway engineered his famous drive near the end of regulation to tie that game. Denver won in overtime on Rich Carlos's controversial field goal. Here's Broncos All-Pro linebacker Carl Mecklenburg describing that field goal during an interview for episode number 28 of the Game Before the Money podcast. We got a couple of first downs, and then Rich Carlos kicked that infamous kick that went right over the top of the uprights. I mean, if the upright would have been taller, it would have hit it. Also of note, the Springfield, Ohio News Sun quoted two Browns players, Bob Golick, and safety Chris Rockins, is saying the same thing after the game, that the ball went over the upright. Pay attention now, because this is super important to remember, because this happens from time to time, and the media gets the fans all worked up about it, and maybe a lot of broadcasters don't know the rule, I don't know, but you're going to learn the exact rule right now, and it's been this way for a long, long time. The 2021 NFL rulebook says that for a field goal to be successful, the ball must go through the uprights or, quote, if above the uprights, between the outside edges, unquote. So what that means is that ultimately, if the ball goes over the uprights, it can still be good. And both of these field goals went above the the uprights. So the second important thing to remember about this rule is that it's a judgment call by the official. It's similar to the home run rule in baseball. Over the foul pole is still a home run. Over the upright can still be a field goal if the official believes that the ball went through the outside edges of the uprights. It's a really tough call to make. And if you're the official you're going to have an entire fan base angry with you no matter what. And you're also probably going to have TV networks slowing things down frame by frame, scrutinizing your call. That's one of the occupational hazards of being an NFL referee. So above the upright is often called good, as in the case of the 1965 NFL West Division playoff and the 1986 AFC Championship game. Both of those games were before instant replay, so I'm going to add this note. The NFL rulebook also states that a kick above the upright is non-reviewable. Non-reviewable. So whatever the official calls, it's non-reviewable if it goes over the top of the uprights. This is also true in college football, even in the 2022 NCAA rulebook that has been released. So remember this, if you see a kick go higher than the uprights this year, and it's called good because it does happen every so often, remember this rule because there will be a time where you'll see the scenario play out. And if you're watching with a bunch of your friends and you state this rule and then the Football rules analyst commentator comes on TV and says the same thing that you've just said, hey, you'll look like the smartest fan in the room. For the refs, it's a really tough call because there has to be some rule in place. We've all seen field goals hit the uprights, and a lot of times they bounce back and are obviously no good. But sometimes the ball hits the upright and still goes in. I can't say for sure, but my guess is this rule is in there to give some leeway to the kicker and, and possibly to the officials too because it's really difficult to determine where an end-over-end football exactly flies when it's higher than the upright and to guess whether if it would have hit a taller upright and to guess at whether it would have went through or whether it would have bounced off. So that's the rule. If it's over the upright, it's basically a non-reviewable judgment call by the officials. And at least in the NFL, the ball has to be between the outside edges of the goalpost. So the kicker gets a little bit more that width of the goalpost. After the controversy of the 1965 Packers-Colts playoff, the NFL raised the uprights for the next season from 10 feet above the crossbar to 20 feet higher. Some of you might remember Justin Tucker made a field goal over the uprights to win a game for the Ravens against the Patriots. After that, the NFL raised the uprights from 30 feet above the crossbar to 35 feet above the crossbar. You can read more about the history of football goalposts at the GameBeforeTheMoney.com slash goalposts. That's the GameBeforeTheMoney.com slash goalposts. All right, coming up, kicker Mark Mosley is going to talk about his 1982 MVP season, and we'll talk about the great kicking feats of offensive lineman Lou Groza of the Cleveland Browns on The Game Before The Money. All right, welcome back. At the top of the show, I mentioned that there was a year that a kicker won the NFL's Most Valuable Player Award. That year was 1982, and the kicker was Mark Mosley. Mosley kicked for the then Washington Redskins and was one of the team's best-known players and one of the NFL's most clutch kickers of his day, and perhaps in history. He was known for making late field goals, both of the game-winning and game-clinching varieties. He was also one of the game's last straight-ahead kickers, and perhaps the last. If you grew up only watching soccer-style kickers like we have today, those who line up at an angle towards the holder rather than straight-ahead, I urge you to watch some film of Mark Mosley, and see the style of a bygone era. So how on earth did a full-time kicker win the NFL's Most Valuable Player Award? Well, 1982 was a unique year all around. Mostly, it was unique in a bad way for us fans. The season openers were scheduled for September 12th, Opening weekend is always exciting, but in 1982, however, there were looming problems between the owners and the players. The owners nearly imposed a lockout before the season started. The players went on strike after week two. NFL football didn't resume until late November. NBC tried broadcasting Canadian Football League games to help us fans get through it all. Those of us who suffered through 1982 went a long time without the NFL. It was a very ugly players-owners war that turned into the longest strike in American pro sports history at the time. It was 57 days long. Somehow the players still didn't get free agency after it was all over, but that's another story for another day. Overall, NFL teams ended up playing a nine-game schedule in 1982. The playoffs were set up differently, and there were eight wildcard round games. 16 teams made the playoffs. A couple of them had losing records. Lions owner William Clay Ford called that year's playoffs, quote, a Mickey Mouse playoff setup. And yes, the Lions were one of the teams with a losing record that made the playoffs that year. On the exciting side for fans, Mark Mosley played a big role in the 1982 season. His performance was magnified by the fact that there were only nine games. Mosley's trusty foot scored every point for Washington in a 12-7 victory over the Cardinals. In fact, Mosley scored 40% of Washington's total points that entire season. That is per pro football reference. And not only that, he scored when it counted. He was a perfect 12 for 12 in games that were decided by seven points or less. Those of you who remember Mark Mosley are probably not that surprised to hear that statistic. His most important regular season Field goal in 1982 came against the division rival New York Giants in a snowstorm at the old RFK Stadium. He booted a 42 yard field goal in the driving snow to seal a division title and set a new NFL record for the most consecutive field goals made. Here's Mark Mosley's memory of the field goal from episode 59 of the Game Before the Money podcast kick against the Giants that year was from 42 yards in the driving snowstorm, it set a new NFL consecutive field goal record, it won the game, and it put us in the playoffs for the first time in six years. So there was a huge, huge amount of pressure on that one kick, but it was something that I lived for. Came down to the fourth quarter with four seconds left and I went out to attempt a 42-yard field goal in snowstorm that you couldn't even see the goalposts. It was snowing so hard. And the field was a mess and they actually broke through and a guy actually hit the ball with his hand and it still never, it never wavered. It went right down the middle from 42 yards out. After the playoffs started, Washington mowed through the 1982 NFC playoffs. The closest margin of victory was a 14-point win over arch-rival Dallas in the NFC Championship game. That win put the team into Super Bowl Seventeen, a game made famous by John Reagan's The Diesel and that incredible run on fourth down for a touchdown. Washington beat Miami that game 27-17. That was the franchise's first championship in 40 years. When it came time to count regular season MVP ballots, Mark Mosley came out on top. He won the Associated Press MVP award by two votes over San Diego quarterback Dan Fouts. Sound crazy? That's how clutch Mark Mosley was. Plus, again, his accomplishments were magnified in a shortened nine game season. All of his kicks were that much more important in a short season. Also, he didn't just win the Associated Press Award. He also won the Sporting News Player of the Year Award and the UPI, NFC, Most Valuable Player Award. Kind of like a great party, sometimes you have to be there to understand. But in 1982, Mosley was as important to his team's success as anybody was in the National Football League. Mark spoke about the moment that head coach Joe Gibbs told him that he had won MVP honors. Coach Gibbs came up to our team meeting and came in and said, "Guys, I want to make an announcement. Since they've just named Mark as the NFL MVP this year, and the team went ballistic. You know, they went crazy. What a blast it must have been to be at that team meeting and hear that your kicker had just won the Most Valuable Player Award. You can hear more from Mark Mosley in episode 59 of the Game Before the Money podcast. Most people don't really know Mark Mosley's story. Most of us think of him as being one of the most clutch kickers in NFL history and the only full-time kicker to win league MVP. But he really was the kicker that nobody wanted. It's a rags to riches story, and I hope you take the time to hear Mark Mosley share it with you on episode 59 of the Game Before the Money podcast. Mark Mosley was a full time kicker, a specialist. Now I'd like to talk about amazing kicking feats by a Hall of Famer who excelled at another position as well. Now, last week, Bill Butler, who played in the 1950s and 1960s for a handful of NFL teams, he was on the show and talked about how he played on offense, defense, and special teams. That was a lot of his value to the clubs he played on because the roster limit was 37 players. Before that, the roster limit stood at 33 or 35 players. That was the era when a guy like Lou Groza of the Cleveland Browns could make the Hall of Fame as an offensive tackle and earn a nickname as a place kicker. They called him Lou the Toe Groza. There were no kicking specialists back when Groza played in the 1950s. And I alluded to this last week. In 1953, Groza hit 88.4% of his field goals to set a new field goal percentage record. That record stood until Jan Stenerud broke it in 1981. And then Mark Mosley broke Stenerud's record in, you know the year now, 1982, the year he won the Most Valuable Player Award. So Lou Groza's single season field goal percentage record held for almost 30 years from the time when offensive linemen doubled as kickers through a good 15 years of the specialist era when guys like Jan Stenerud could make the Hall of Fame solely as a kicker. That's part of what's amazing about Lou The Groza's record standing for as long as it did. Once roster size increased to 40 and even 43 and 45, then teams had room for full-time kickers on their roster. But even then... Full-time kickers like Tony Fritsch, who once held the all-time field goal percentage record for a career, he never had a season at 88%. Hall of Famer Jan Stenerud only had one year where he matched Groza's percentage record, and that was 1981, the year he broke it. Hall of Fame kicker Morton Anderson, a lot of people will say he's the greatest kicker of all time. Only two years In his entire career, did he top Lou the Toe Groza's 88.4% in field goal percentage. Adam Vinatieri, he topped Lou Groza's mark in only six of his 24 seasons. Even Justin Tucker has had a couple of seasons below offensive tackle Lou Groza's 1953 season. In fact, Lou Groza... I know this is crazy. Lou Groza with his 88.4% that he had in 1953 would have finished 13th in the NFL in both 2020 and 2021 for field goal percentage. He would have finished in the top 10 in 2019. In the age of multi-million dollar kickers, Cleveland's Lou the Toe Groza, a Hall of Fame offensive lineman, still holds his own. Okay, college football. I love college football. I'm guessing you do as well. I love the history of the game. I love the tradition. It's awesome. So this is the game before the money's college football preview. It's not going to be the obvious, like, watch out for Alabama, keep an eye on Ohio State. If you're a knowledgeable fan, you already know that stuff. So at least 90% of this is going to be off the beaten path because one of the great things about college football is every team has a story each year and it doesn't have to be just your top ranked teams to be fun and enjoyable. So I'm going to tell you a few things that I'm looking out for this year that I'm excited about and what I'm going to be watching for. I'm going to start with three teams in the Big 12 and what I'm going to be watching for. First, with Baylor having a great year last year under Dave Aranda, they were a surprise team. They won the Sugar Bowl. Are they going to be able to continue that? You'll see this in college football sometimes. A team will have a surprise year because they kind of sneak up on everybody. I'm not saying that's the reason why Baylor won last year, but I'm curious to find out how they're going to do this year if they can put back-to-back great seasons together. And the one team I'm super interested in, in the Big 12, is Kansas State. I really like what Chris Kleiman is doing there. They've got Colin Klein as their offensive coordinator. You might remember he was an exciting quarterback at Kansas State. The Wildcats finished 8-5 and five last year. And they had close games against OU and Texas, and they hung in there with Baylor, too. And there are three players I'm really going to be watching. And the first is the guy that I think can be the next big breakout defensive star in college football. Felix Anudike Uzama. I'm just going to nickname him Felix the Wildcat. I voted for him for All-American last year. I put him on my All-American ballot. He didn't make the All-American team as a sophomore last year, but at times he looked unblockable as a sophomore. I'm really excited to see what this kid can do his junior year. Plus, they have Deuce Vaughn in the backfield, an exciting running back, had over 1,400 yards last year. And at quarterback, they have from Nebraska, Adrian Martinez. And I'm really looking forward to what he can do under our offensive coordinator, Colin Klein. Now, the third team in the Big 12 that I'm going to keep an eye on is TCU. because so I'm curious to see how they do with Sonny Dykes as their head coach. He said during the Big 12 media days that, quote, TCU is about winning championships. And Coach Dykes also says he wants to coach in that type of environment. We talked about culture in the first couple of episodes of the game before the money, I'm looking to see what kind of culture is going to be built up around that TCU football program. If we can kind of perceive what post-Gary Patterson culture is going to be like. I'm also going to be looking forward to that TCU at SMU game on September 24th. Should be good fun. Sonny Dykes against his former team. Now here are some other teams... I'm going to be watching USC with new head coach Lincoln Riley. Talk about hitting the jackpot in the transfer portal. Caleb Williams at quarterback. Jordan Addison, the Bolitnikoff Award winner at receiver. Look, I'm not necessarily a USC fan, but they're one of those classic teams. And when they're competitive, college football is just that much more exciting. Same with Texas, Notre Dame, Alabama. At least for me. I want to see the traditional powerhouses be good. And this USC team with those transfers and Lincoln Riley coming over from Oklahoma, they could be right back on top. So I'm going to be watching for that. Also going to be watching Michigan State in the Big Ten. Kind of similar situation with Baylor. Mel Tucker coached them to a 10-2 and record last year. Are the Spartans back? They lost star running back Kenneth Walker to the NFL. They've got two transfer running backs and only two starters returning on the offensive line. So what I'm paying attention to with Michigan State is how well Coach Tucker can handle that turnover. And this could give us a look as to how consistent that Michigan State program can be over the next few years. The ACC... Overall, is very compelling to me this year because Clemson didn't even win their division last year. And now it's time to see if Wake Forest and NC State are really capable of keeping up with the Tigers. I'm not worried at all about Clemson. They got off to a slow start last year. But don't forget, they started the year off against future national champion Georgia and held them to 10 points. Nobody else came close to that. Georgia averaged 40 points a game the rest of the season, and only Alabama held them to under 30 points. That was in the SEC championship game. I still think in the ACC the pressure is on the other teams in that division to keep up with Clemson. So I'll be watching to see if Wake Forest and NC State can still swim in that lane. In the other division, I'm going to be watching to see how the Pitt Panthers are going to do. I'll be keeping an eye on them to see if they're going to be running more after losing Pickett and Addison. But what's also really going to be interesting to watch in the ACC this year is where Miami is with their new head coach. And so I'm really looking forward to their early game against Texas A&M to kind of get a gauge of where the cane is at. And I never count Mac Brown out of anything. I think North Carolina is going to be improved. And I think overall, the ACC is going to be a very competitive and enjoyable conference to watch this year. Now, you also might remember, in the first episode, I said that smaller conferences could really be exciting to watch as we're about to enter college football mega-conferences. I look at the American Athletic Conference. They provided a playoff berth for Cincinnati last year. And Luke Fickle's Bearcats have lost only seven games since 2018, including in the postseason. And he has 13 starters returning. But it's Central Florida, I'm also going to be watching out for. They were 9-4 last year with a bull victory over Florida. And they have 16 starters returning. So they might surprise some people. Keep an eye on them, especially through their October 29th game against Cincinnati. Houston and SMU are also going to be interesting this year. Houston always seems to have such an exciting offense. And SMU with their new head coach, curious to see how they turn out. Now I'm going to turn my eye to the Mountain West. Again, not a conference that gets a lot of headlines, but there's some enjoyable football there in the Mountain West. And I'm really going to be paying attention to Colorado State. I know, sounds crazy. But their new head coach, Jay Norvell, he built up Nevada's program. He took them to bowl games in four out of the five seasons that he coached there. The only year they didn't go to a bowl game was his first year as head coach. He played under Hayden Fry. He worked under Bob Stoops at OU. Nevada was his first head coaching job. And I really want to see if he can also turn around this Colorado State Rams program. Because he could be a guy that bigger schools are going to look into if he can turn both of those programs around. Colorado State will have a redshirt freshman quarterback starting this year in Clay Millen, who followed Coach Norvell from Nevada. Now, Clay Millen is also the son of former NFL quarterback Hugh Millen, who helped lead the Washington Huskies to a 1985 Orange Bowl victory. So not exactly your average everyday redshirt freshman quarterback. So that's another interesting thing to watch about this Colorado State team. And I'm keeping my eye on this team over the season They start out at Michigan. They also play Washington State early. So they have their work cut out for them. And that Colorado State team is going to get some serious experience before conference play. So I'll be watching them throughout the year, see how much they improve, and interested to see what Coach Jay Norvell does at Colorado State this year and the next few seasons. I'm also going to keep tabs on Jackson State, Deion Sanders as their head coach. I like seeing a bit of resurgence of HBCU football. Bubba McDowell is now the head coach at Prairie View A&M. Many of you might remember him as a star defensive back for the Houston Oilers. Eddie George is the head coach at Tennessee State now. Those are programs with a lot of great history. And other traditional HBCU powerhouses like Florida A&M are strong. There's great history in the HBCUs. So many Hall of Famers like Ken Houston, Elvin Bethay, Deacon Jones, Walter Payton, Willie Lanier. I mean, just off the top of my head. So it's really good to see HBCU football getting some attention again and becoming strong again. So as the season progresses, I'm going to talk about some of these teams. I'm going to talk about Kansas State, what Colorado State is doing, how the ACC is playing out, what I see going on. Because this show isn't just about big, big big-time college football and just cover the teams in contention for the college football playoff. I wouldn't be telling you anything you probably hadn't heard before. But what I hope to do is also help you appreciate some of the teams that don't get as much attention and even some of the teams that have a fun story around them who are either up and coming or maybe don't really have a chance at all. But football is still football and it's still enjoyable to watch at every level. And so I hope we can watch this college football season together and kind of find some of the hidden gems because they're out there all across the country. That's one of the beautiful things about college football and I enjoy the college football playoff as as much as the rest of you but it's beneath that where a lot of fun and interesting stuff in college football happens so we're going to be following that throughout this 2022 NCAA football season And so to that effect, rather than give out a Heisman hopeful list, we'll follow some other awards. The Outland Trophy is awarded to the nation's best interior lineman on offense or defense. The official watch list hasn't come out yet, but I'll give you three people to watch out for right now. My first pick would be Jalen Carter, a defensive tackle from Georgia. Defensive tackle Jordan Davis of Georgia won last year. And I think Jalen Carter has a good chance to duplicate that feat. I'm also going to be watching Paris Johnson in the Outland Trophy race, tackle from Ohio State, and also another Big Ten offensive tackle, Peter Skaronsky from Northwestern. I love that his name is Skaronsky, like Bob Skaronsky, who won five championships as an offensive lineman for the Green Bay Packers was even out there for the coin toss at Super Bowl I. All right, coming up next, one last tidbit about Lou the Toe Groza on The Game Before the Money. I'm Jackson Michael. Please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com and check out The Game Before the Money podcast. Talked about legendary Cleveland Browns lineman Lou the Toe Groza earlier in the show, who was also an outstanding kicker in his day. A few more tidbits about the Toe. The college football award for the best kicker in the country is called the Lou Groza Award. Groza went to Ohio State. His college coach was the legendary Paul Brown. Groza didn't stay at Ohio State long because he joined the Army to serve in World War II. A lot of well-known NFL players were part of World War II, and Upton Bell and I are going to discuss that on a future show or on the podcast. I'll keep you posted. Lou Groza served as a medic in the Pacific Theater During the war, Paul Brown started signing players for the newly formed Cleveland Browns and sent Groza a contract, which he signed while serving in the South Pacific. When Groza came back from the war, he showed up to Brown's training camp in his army fatigues. What's amazing to think about is that Groza played only one year of college football, but since it was under Paul Brown, the legendary head coach, of the Cleveland Browns, he was offered a contract to sign with Cleveland, and he ended up with a Hall of Fame football career. And although he was a Hall of Fame offensive lineman, he ended up scoring more points in his career than Jerry Rice. How about that, as Mel Allen would say. Lou Groza was an excellent all-around athlete. He helped lead his high school to the state basketball championship. And Lou Groza's brother, Alex, played basketball at Kentucky when they won two national championships. Thank you for listening to The Game Before the Money. I'm Jackson Michael. For more great football stories, please visit TheGameBeforeTheMoney.com and check out The Game Before the Money podcast. We'll see you next week. I'm